We, the citizens of the city of Billings, for the purpose of establishing a just form of fundamental law, one that is responsible to the public for providing equal and adequate services and protections with efficient use of the community's revenue for all, one that provides for self-governing powers with respect to health, safety, and welfare of every citizen, and one that utilizes the utmost flexibility to plan for the future, do establish this charter for the city of Billings of the state of Montana. The Friday Packet with Stocky and Stout. Kevin Koistra, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, that's correct. It's Kevin. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <It's> K-E-V-I-N. <laughs> Very good. Executive director of the Western Heritage Center in uh, beautiful downtown Billings, Montana. Um, I have his uh, email and phone numbers here, but you can find that online if you find it that important and you need something <laughs> along those lines. I'm sure he can be found at uh, www.y. WHC.org. That is correct. Yep. Yes. Our, all of our private personal information is <laughs> available online at the website. So. Yes, that'll happen when you're a county and a nonprofit and everything at once. Yeah, of course. You're an open book yep. like that. Uh, and it's, I don't know, probably our listener is, might be unfamiliar with the, uh, what is the Western Heritage Center, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The Western Heritage Center is located in the heart of downtown in the old Parmley Billings Memorial Library. It uh, opened in 1971. The library itself had been abandoned for like three, four years. And so there was a question of tearing it down. Uh, the city had already torn down the, the city hall, the beautiful county courthouse on, on North Broadway. And this was like the third strike. So somebody in town by the name of Vern Drake from Drake and Gustafson Architecture who had built what he said was a lot of the brutalism architecture in town, kind of oh, the more yeah. more of the boxy kind of just functional buildings. Yeah, you know? the LA building at the uh, actually, MSB. yeah, that was one he cited. Actually, I think his firm was responsible for that. Um, yeah, that's a classic example. Or the Fortin building oh, yeah. off of Rimrock, those kind of big boxy things. Yeah, brutalist for sure. Function over form kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, he took it upon himself to save the building, to save the public library. And uh, initially, actually, he, uh, we are on railroad property today even. Mm-hmm. So most people don't know this. Um, he had to go to the railroad and say, I want to save the building. I want to build a museum. The railroad turned him down. So he came back like a month later and he said, okay, I have another idea to save the building. I want to build an interpretive center. And the railroad in 1969 didn't know what that was, so they said, "Okay, tell us what an interpretive center was." <laughs> How do we make money from this? Yeah, so, well, I, you know, I think the railroad had had a history of like you know communities like occupying, like depots and stuff like that, sure. failing. Yeah. So uh, Vern Drake's pitch in 1969 was changing displays, uh, the incorporation of the latest technologies, and a focus on outreach programming. So that's why we're the Western Heritage Center. Sure. I mean, really, it was a, a semantics trick, but it was also kind of his idea to yeah. create something a little different and novel. So in 71, we opened in the library building. So, cool. And, and we're busy all the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I guess walking in, you would assume that it's a museum. But it it's, is, yeah. It's, it's more than that. Absolutely. And uh, it's kind of the repository for the 
oh, I don't know, the historical uh, studies of Billings and kind of the surrounding area specifically, but also yeah. the West in general as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, our, our, our general area of interpretation is the Yellowstone River Valley, but obviously the Northern Plains fits that, you know. Um, mm -hmm. We have collections of photographs from Reed Point, you know, cool. stuff from Miles City, um, um, you know, and a lot of what we do, you know, we have the exhibits, we do about 10 or 11 exhibits a year, which, which is a little too much probably for the small staff we have, but we, most of, most of what we do is reach people outside the building. Yeah. Our outreach, actually, we, we meet more people outside the building through public programming, walking mm -hmm. tours, our traveling exhibits and things like that. So, so it's really fun. It means very dynamic. Everybody in the staff is, is looks bleary eyed <laughs> as anybody probably in any nonprofit, you know yeah. how it is. You have to have a passion to do this kind of work. Um, but you're right. Uh, you know, we, we're definitely the, I consider us the repository. So a lot of these projects, and I know we're going to talk about the Yellowstone Kelly site, but a lot of the projects that come to us are whether it's the chamber of commerce or the Billings Depot, or whether it's the colleges, they'll come to us and mm -hmm. see what we have. And if we do create a project with them, whether it's an exhibit or some kind of outreach programming or something, we keep everything. So there have been instances that we've had museums in other places in Montana contact us and say, you remember that photo about 15 years ago? Uh -huh. You know, and we just happen to have backups. We can't sell it. Sure. We can't really do anything we can. We can disperse and say what our, our source is. But we often have like what I call safety negatives and safety images from the That's hospitals. Cool. And <laughs> so, yeah, it's really cool. We actually spent about $7,000 recently to update our computers because we have so much content from oral histories, really? photographs. Our server is massive, and of course we back it up every week too. So well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is really cool. Actually, it's fun because I almost have to remind staff every day when they begin a project, check our own archives first. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it, it's almost like this constant thing for me, you know, because it's it's hard to believe how much we have. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? In terms of volume of materials, so okay. so you have paid staff and volunteers. We do. We have uh, right now. We actually only have two paid. Uh, myself and uh, Lauren Hunley is a community historian, and we have five part times. So we have a collections manager, a finance assistant, and then we actually hire out. We have a uh, we work with an accounting firm who helps us with payroll and stuff like that. And actually, I kind of like that having a professional firm outside the institution looking over our yeah, shoulders. Absolutely. Uh, also, we actually hired a marketing company to work with us to help us. Uh, I don't have the skill set to create really beautiful, you know. Uh, brochures and stuff like that so we actually hired an independent company also for that so we have seven staff a lot of volunteers uh, most of our volunteers are probably more front desk people mm -hmm. or or in collections you know what i mean they're managing the day-to-day -day operations and collections and stuff and then of course we have board of directors too yeah so. absolutely shout out emily mike volunteer <laughs> oh emily yes yeah. i work with her downtown oh yeah i love emily you know you know the background of emily and i no oh yeah uh, okay so when i went to now we're gonna really this could no. be an hour and a half <laughs> okay so it's good. So, so, that's okay so uh when i went to bozeman in uh, the 1980s i had a professor who had just graduated with his phd uh, dr larry uh -huh. lawrence carucci 
and uh, Carucci was just started at Bozeman when I was there. And, and really, actually, I, I've said this about him many times, he changed the way I think. He, he was a cultural anthropologist who worked in the Marshall Islands. I took all of his classes. I was incredibly sadistic. You know, he was like a young <laughs> professor out of Chicago, and yeah. he was like nuts. He was still energy. using all the books that he had that he had been reading as a PhD mm. student, wow. stuff like that. And so by, you know, senior year, it was like myself and one other student. That's it in his classes. Emily was also sees him as a mentor. Oh, really? But 35 years later. Oh, that's cool. Which I think is awesome. Yeah. And he, she said he really hadn't changed. He was still <laughs> like that sadistic, you know, bastard, you know, but, <laughs> but obviously loved his students yeah, and, sure. and wanted to, to really get people working hard. So I always felt like, I mean, I have that kind of, I have the beginning of the Crucci period. Mm -hmm. She has the finish and both of us see him as a mentor. That's so if he's cool out bridge. there listening, yeah. I don't know if he actually <laughs> knows that about both of us, but, oh, that's but 30 years apart, you know, to have two students from Bozeman who are influenced by a particular person. That's cool. That's cool. a nice story. Yeah. So uh, where did you start out? What was your education? What's your, what's your story? Um, what got you into the line of work you are today? I guess you could say. Um, I think coming out west had a lot to do with it, but I, I'm originally from New Jersey, and uh, I took. Uh, I, I love biology. I love the outdoors. I love, you know, I still do this. People who know me well, I mean, I'll go out driving down gravel roads looking for snakes and, you know, pouncing around a pond to find turtles mm -hmm. and just to ID species and sure. things like that. So when I first went to school, I thought it was for biology, but I could not handle some of the classes, like especially field biology and statistics classes. At the same time, I started taking anthropology courses, okay. and I just found absolutely a perfect fit, um, you know, and just followed that. So I actually came out west in 1980 to work in Yellowstone National Park, um, and I was completely ignorant. I knew nothing about the American West. I mean, I... I the first conversation I had with a Montanan was in Gardner, Montana. And I went up to a couple of cowboys and I said, uh, and I, I may have had a, more of an accident at the time. I said, so uh, I, I didn't know we had uh, gazelles in North America. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and they, uh, they, these two cowboys look at me and they say, buddy, you're drinking with us tonight. <laughs> so, so I spent my first night in the two-bit saloon in Gardner, Montana. Oh, and like I was like, Completely sold about the American West. Learned uh, a lot that night. Uh, absolutely. I went. I went. Uh, I, I, they taught me all about the jackalope. Uh -huh. I think uh -huh. I, I, I almost think that jackalope is still on the wall at the two bit. Oh, I'm sure. yeah, yeah. And I was like, no shit. <laughs> like I had no. And then they took me out snipe hunting. Are yeah, you guys oh, yeah. familiar with snipe mm -hmm. hunting? Yeah, that's yeah they fun. Had, I had the bag and the stick, and it was like 11:30 at night. And we had drank quite a bit of beer, and yeah. I was like, I'm ready. You know, yeah. I mean, a bird that that's stupid yeah. will jump in my bag and all you had to do is say the word snipe and hit the bag <laughs> yeah i was like and actually they started feeling sorry for me <laughs> they, were like, they were like buddy buddy we're just kidding okay <laughs> uh, so anyway uh, yeah it's just that opened the whole road to the uh like the american west that yeah. experience of the the west is so unusually vast and beautiful and stuff so i ended up going to bozeman because that's one thing you could do in the american west if you're coming from New Jersey, how do you get out west? You can either work in Yellowstone like I did. The mm -hmm. second thing I did was go to Bozeman to go to school. So I have an you know, undergrad in sociology, but more of an emphasis on anthropology. And then I have an applied anthropology degree uh, from Northern Arizona University, which is really a fancy way of saying 
maybe an anthropologist will find a job someday. You know what I mean? Like that's what applied <laughs> yeah. anthropology is. Because you know, yeah. most anthropologists would have to get their PhD to find a line of work that would be satisfying. Gotcha. So I did archaeology for several years. I did cultural anthropology. I worked with all the Northern Plains tribes for about three years, which is an amazing experience. Actually, really shaped my thinking and how I, I look at the world also, you know. So um, the museum thing, I kind of like just fell into, oddly enough. I had never really considered myself, like the museum wasn't like a target at all. And um, uh, my wife and I at the time got married at the Bighorn County Museum just because there was a white church there. Sure. And then we were like, oh, we could have our reception at the Huntley Project Museum of Irrigated Agriculture because mm -hmm. they had a nice little community center. So, so there was some early museum connections there. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, that comes later. I just saw a job opening that seemed like a good fit. It was for a community historian at the Western Heritage Center. Um, she said a long time ago, probably 1997 or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it was just a fantastic fit because it allowed me... It allowed me to explore the history of a place, you know what I mean? To yeah. Not not just, uh, you know, all broadly, you know what I mean? To work with an amazing array of people over time and stuff like that, uh, historians of every walk of life and stuff. So I really actually felt like I had stepped into a position that really suited what I like to do. And I, I, I like storytelling. You know, I like to, uh, I like to look at history uh, unbounded. I like the stories where, uh, you know, we have a tendency to, to break history into these little fragments of pieces. But to, like, I'll give you one example. For example, I love the story of the first Crow Agency, which was located near Livingston. And the, re the reason I like it, I always called it a meeting by the river, which actually is a title I stole from Ryan Cooter, um, <laughs> which was a film. I think it was a, an album he did with... Uh, one of the great African musicians, Ali Farka Torah, maybe. Really? And he called it a meeting by the river. So you take these types of music and you blend them. Well, the first Crow Agency was set up in 1869, really to turn the Crow into agriculturalists, to turn the Crow Nation people into farmers. And the okay. premise was, we'll build this fort, which is a fort that was really designed to uh, distribute annuities that were... Uh, we're part of the transaction, I suppose, for the crow giving up so much of their uh, their country. And so they were supposed to receive these annual annuities at this first crow agency called uh, so Fort Parker, or um, which is right down, if you go down to uh, Livingston at Springdale, mm -hmm. you'll see the exit from Mission Creek. That's where the old mission was. That's oh, the really? first crow agency. Huh. The second crow agency was as Absorkey. Okay. The third Crow Agency is where it is today. So they kept moving it because, of course, they kept chopping the reservation down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, this um, seems nice. Let's keep this. So what I loved about that story is that, you know, again, they wanted to turn the Crow into farmers. And oddly enough, from 1869 to 1875, they turned the fur trapper and the agent himself into crows. Oh. <laughs> so if you think about, like, today, like some of the names yeah. on the reservation, yeah. Pease, Stewart. Reed, LaForge, they're all European-descended people yeah. becoming Crow. That's interesting. Moving, yeah, and, and there was maybe some incentive. The government was going to provide seed and tools and all of this. And, of course, these are you know lonely white guys scattered around the country, mm -hmm. and here's the Crow Nation. Yeah. And they provided, like, housing units outside the fort, and these men who become part of 
Crow culture married into the tribe yeah, one by one. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Fellows DPs was actually the agent of the first Crow agency. Really? And he marries into the tribe. Yes, oh, and cool. he was a very well-known kind of Montana figure. You know what I mean? Like uh, Samuel Hauser and a lot of the uh, kind of well-known Montana characters in the early Montana history were friends of his. Huh. He marries into the tribe. So if you know the Pease family, of course, yeah, that name, of that's where it's derived from. Mm-hmm. So those are the stories I like where, mm-hmm. where the world's turned upside down. It's shifted. It's not so simple. Yeah. Everybody's not a passive character. So often people who are the conquered peoples are described as the passive. Yeah. But when you start pulling away the layers, you realize there's these kind of examples. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the second agency, it changes a little more. The third agency, a different story. So, And I love the, the details. I love the primary documents. I love the uh, kind of... Uh, you know, hearing the oral history accounts from, like, for example, the Crow tribe in that instance, but also all the government records that were left behind. You know, you're, you're dependent on good transcribers and translators, but yeah. uh, there's so much richness in those stories. So that's why I said it. I call it a meeting by the river when yeah. I do that program because it is a <laughs> fluid kind of amalgamation of what's happening and like almost like an experiment on the uh, northern great plains so so a lot of the work i did um primarily even today actually as a community historian and even now as the executive director is look at those kind of stories and figure out how to convey them to Mm-hmm. as many audiences as possible. This is something we have not done a podcast, you know, which is intriguing to me, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, I think it's a really good way to distribute this information. I think there, um, people seem to be pretty fond of podcasts and especially just educational ones. They seem to go over well, and I'd love to see a Western yeah. Heritage Center podcast. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we actually are in discussion with this marketing company about blogs and I, I, my younger, I, I work with mostly younger people. I actually always kid them. I said, I, you know, the 30 to 60-year-old crowd, we have to really stick together. Well, <laughs> like, I'm 58, so you know where they all, they're all in their early 30s, you know. Yeah. Um, they, they seem to be not so impressed with blogs. I don't think that's happening. You know, that, that's like, fun, like we've seen museums reach out and try to, to, to communicate with the blog. And then after about a year and a lot of work, people kind of fall off. Mm-hmm. So like I said, the podcast is interesting to me because it, it, it lends itself more to storytelling. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So, yeah, the Montana Historical Society has one, as you know. Yeah. Um, uh, that one I've, I've listened to quite a bit. Um, it's got some audio issues on it for sure. But oh, okay. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, down the road, I'd love to see um, just that to, to spread and disseminate different stories of the Yellowstone Valley other than yeah. the common narrative of the, the cowboy Absolutely, you know, yeah. riding in and yeah. taming the West. Yeah, you know, we, we face this too, and I think you and I just kind of uh, off, is it off air? Is that mm-hmm. what you call it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> off the yeah. mic or yeah. whatever. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, we've been approached by uh, folks in town who, you know, you don't want to want to create the same narrative. And, and it's almost like sometimes, unfortunately, you're almost forced to follow that narrative. I'll give you one a good example. is like a Calamity Jane. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, when when people come to Billings, like the T-Bex folks, you know, the bloggers are coming into town. It's like, you know, yeah, if you have actor portrayer, you know, portrayals, like I think we're going to have at the depot uh, in early September. Yeah. You know, you look at the characters in the historic past, and it's kind of like, 
ah, oh, Calamity Jane again, you know what yeah. I mean? But yeah. if you look at her story, you know, it's not that flattering. You know, the, the stories of her and Billings are really about being arrested several times for drunkenness <laughs> or attacking yeah. people with a hatchet at one point, you know what sure. I mean? So, you know, is that the kind of character that we portray? But oddly enough, that's what is often portrayed. So, of course, Calamity Jane will be at the event. Absolutely. So will Yellowstone Kelly. Um, okay. You know, and we had this discussion actually, uh, you know, with Alex Tyson, who's, who's very open-minded about this stuff. And it's like, you know, well, maybe we shouldn't do Ollie Warren, the prostitute from Billings. Mm-hmm. So we offered a couple different options. You know, we talked about uh, Hazel Hunkins, the suffragist from, yeah. from Billings. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, but it takes a long time to move away from that. I mean, my brother wrote a whole book called Criminals as Heroes, that obsession with the gunslinging, gunfighting kind of characters mm-hmm. that's so embedded in American culture, yeah, you know what I mean? And I, I feel like Calamity Jane, I mean, I, the one thing that she has going for is, of course, the show Deadwood portrayed her. So younger people are, are familiar with yeah. Uh, at least a representation of who she is. Yeah. Well, she was the um, best character in that show, too. Yeah, yeah. So she's got a following again. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so you, you can, you're, like, yeah. You, you're falling back on these historical characters mm-hmm. um, who don't represent necessarily the best of humanity. <laughs> no, yeah. not you know? necessarily. No, yeah. but it happens time and time again. We were so fascinated by the, the Tony Sopranos yeah. or, or the Breaking Bad and stuff. Yeah, the you know, mob we, movies or the... Uh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, you know. Breaking Bad stuff, yeah. You know, so again, you know, like with The Chamber, you know, like I said, we have a great working relationship with The Chamber. You know, when you're promoting this area, it's it's it goes back, you know, to kind of that old West, mm-hmm. the old mythology, you know yeah. what I mean? Like somehow people from New Jersey or California or Germany, that, that's what they're looking for when mm-hmm. they come out here, kind of that narrative. So well, I'm tying right back into yeah. your first night in Montana. That's right. That's what got your attention was the mythology of Absolutely. the jackalope and the snipe yeah. and whatever and the yeah. early myths. Yeah, you know. It is, it's an attractive and exciting thing to discuss. Yeah, it really is. The so. suffragette is arguably more important. Well, and I think way, the, 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 her, the story, you know, Hazel Hunk, because everybody at work says I have a crush on her. Mm-hmm. I used to have a crush on Senator Mike Mansfield because <laughs> yeah. I was doing a lot of research on him, and I really liked Mansfield. Yeah. And I liked what he represented and, you know, mm-hmm. working across the aisle and stuff. So that that's one of the most fun parts of our job is to get to to learn a little more about these characters from, uh, you know, the people who lived with them at the time and stuff like that. So, um you know, like working with the chamber, you know, of course, it's kind of like, you know, what are we going to represent of Billings? And, and and this goes back even to the Yellowstone Kelly stuff in uh, the Chamber of Commerce, what was the commercial club back in the teens and 20s, uh, when Billings became the largest city in the Yellowstone River Valley. It was really the commercial club, which, you know, the predecessor of the Chamber of Commerce that really all of a sudden took this incredible focus on the old west again sure you know what i mean like yep. like here we had become the largest industrial city in the valley mm-hmm. the largest city in the region and instead of pumping that up front they did at some level with things like the midland empire yeah. and, and some of those monikers like the sugar city and stuff mm-hmm. but but in terms of like approaching tourism you know they focused on you know yellowstone kelly uh, the William S. Hart statue, the silent movie star, uh, mm-hmm. cowboy that's up at the rims, the Black Otter Trail during the 1930s, uh, you know, the, the 
the pictograph caves were excavated in the 1930s. There's that almost like simplifying the cowboy Indian kind of thing that has been part of the the chamber's enticement, you know, for people to come here. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? At least at the historic layer. You know what I mean? Because obviously most people probably come to Montana for Yellowstone Park or Glacier, places like that. So Yeah. So that's sort of part of the the whole crux of having you come in um, is I'm working on an episode for Yellowstone Kelly and why that deserved as much acclaim and attention and such a focal point in the city when there are so much, so many different stories and there's such a narrative that could be told up there that isn't just, here's this one guy. And then, and I know you, you did the placards around there that sort of explained it, but it, it, I don't know if it it seems to get lost on me or if I just have a generally just shitty attitude about it. Um, (laughs) Cause you know, um, but I would like to see those stories explained because I think the, the diversity of the city and the valley would be much more marketable than the same old, same old. Yeah, you, you know, I mean, you can't just keep hammering on the the Cowboys and Indian stuff and again, expect people to, yeah. to come in. Well, I think what happened with the Yellowstone Kelly site is that it became an outgrowth of the whole trail system, mm-hmm. the Heritage Trail system, the Marathon Loop. You know, I was starting at the, the Mary Lake Trail, mm-hmm. uh, you know, over the last 25 years that I've been here. I mean, the, the bike trails have taken off. And I, the way I see the Yellowstone Kelly site is, uh, you know, Yellowstone Kelly could have gone anywhere. He even says that it could have been buried at, uh, you know, Arlington National Cemetery, because, like, obviously, he was a war vet of three different campaigns and stuff. But, you know, working along the trail system, I mean, you know, a new outhouse, or not outhouse, but a bathroom near the picnic area, the new trails connecting, and the Yellowstone Kelly site was always a sore spot for even me, personally. I, I'm Whatever your beliefs are for Kelly, it, mm-hmm it looked bad. Yeah. Like I had yeah. some friends from New York come up about five years ago and they were like, where are all the car bodies? You know what I mean? You didn't even know it was a graveyard. Mm-hmm. And so what I do like about it is it's part of this larger, broader picture to start representing. And, and I hear what you're saying and it's absolutely dead on. There's so many stories in this valley. You know, when we do our walking tours up there, we, we talk about Kelly because obviously the site has been redone and it's remade. And it's much more attractive and it's respectful because it's actually, it's what in sense the city and the state had promised him back in the 20s. Sure. Uh, it wasn't done. You know, I, mean, I have a letter from Mrs. Kelly with me here in 1936 where she was already complaining about the state of the cemetery, the grave. Really? Oh, yeah, because when the, when the, the commercial club or the chamber took it on, they were going to actually, at one point, they were talking about some giant monument up there, which, thank goodness, that didn't happen. That time over, you know, the, the hundred, almost 100 years it took to get them a gravestone. I mean, really, that's what, there was no grave up there. To me, it was a concrete a marble, crypt, yeah. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think, like I said, I had friends who went up there and they were looked at it like, why would anybody want to go here for any reason? So I think it gave us an opportunity along the Heritage Trail system to start developing these places. Mm-hmm. So, you know, out of the Kelly uh, experience have been contacts with the tribes, um, you know, uh, Bill Snell and folks like that about how to get the tribes engaged in this storytelling as we move around the trail. Mm-hmm. So, for example, right now, the Boot Hill Cemetery, there's interest in that. Mm-hmm. They're doing ground penetrating radar. It's like the next story. But you would hope 
with consultation with like, for example, the Crow tribe that you could be able to share stories like places of the skull or the sacrifice cliff. You know what I mean? These are, these are fixtures in our history. And like I said, when I do tours up there, that's what I talk about. Because again, I, I I give you one example is like the uh, Colson town cemetery, which is called Boot Hill Cemetery, which by the 1920s, the Eastern Montana pioneers hated the name. They actually protested it because they thought it was like a, a tourism thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, not everybody who died there died with their boots on. Mm-hmm. You know, there were children who died, and then a mother yeah. died there. You know yeah. what I mean? But for whatever reason, that no, that name, that moniker was attached to it at some point, like late 1890s. By then, that graveyard was already in complete disrepair. Now, and you know where that is, up by Applebee's right now. Mm-hmm. The town of Colson itself was down by the river, mm-hmm. you know, maybe a mile and a half from the center of downtown Billings. Enough that obviously when Billings was established in 1882, the town of Colson was disregarded and basically abandoned. So by the you know late 1880s, it was hardly anything in Colson. But in the period that Colson existed from 1877 to 1882, the people had a decision where to bury their dead. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a coincidence, but they buried their dead just below the place of the skulls. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a relationship there. And I, I'm not the first person to say that. Stu Connor, who worked with the Crow tribe during the 1960s, uh, said the same thing. That basically, the place of the skulls, uh, as I understand the story, you know, again, from places like uh, Joe Medicine Crow or Mardell Plainfeather, uh, was there was a smallpox epidemic, basically where the fairgrounds is. It could have been even as late as 1857, uh, the story of the uh, sacrifice cliff comes out of that mm-hmm. particular uh, point in time, also. But the uh, the people who died there, you know, they left the bones, they left the bodies sometimes behind, and then over the next twenty five years, people collected. I don't know who collected, but they brought the bones and put them up on the shelf just above where Boot Hill would be put. Okay. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, I I think that's very interesting that mm-hmm. like the Colson folks recognize the significance. Where, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, going back to uh, the Kelly site, uh, we were aware that the site uh, not only uh, obviously on the east end has the, the Colson Town Cemetery, but obviously the place of the skulls, uh, you know, and um, that, that's uh, recognized when you go to the site now. It wasn't in the past, sure. you know what I mean? It was, it was like sort of implied. You know, the, there was Kelly's grave, and that's why it should be important. But really, the, all of the high ground in this area... Um, you know, are probably, you know, fasting beds, vision cool. questing areas and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Obviously across the river, you have the four dances, vision questing site, which is a very important site. Um, so, you know, in, in, in my, my conception, working with an incredible team of about 20 people, uh, for one, I think there had to be some kind of arch or gateway to let people know there was a cemetery there. Do you know what I mean? Like great yes. Kelly's, Kelly's grave. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because in the past, it was just, it was a disaster. You know what I mean? It was, there was no acknowledgement. So when you come up to the site itself, the first panel you read is the fact that this is a sacred site to Native peoples. You know what I mean? It's their first panel. Yes, Kelly's grave is here, but this is a bigger picture right here. Mm -hmm. That on the east end of Swords Rimrock Park is the place of the skulls. Oh, just beyond that is the Colson Sound Town Cemetery. So, you know, right away I wanted to establish kind of what anthropologists call like liminality. You know, you get out of your car, 
you're confronted with some kind of gate almost. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You're confronted with what I almost like. Like I love liminality because like uh, they use it classically in uh, like churches. Yeah. The, the notion when you go to church on Sunday, you dress up, you change your clothing, you go to the church, you it's open the door, yeah. there are other people, they're dressed like you. What do they do? There's uh, ushers, guides that take you to your seats, that give you a bulletin that tells you when to sit, when to stand. There's all of those things that happen in a transitional state when you go to a site. So that's how I viewed this site, is that you had to have some kind of mark that gated it off, that showed you were entering a site, in the hopes that if people recognized it more as a sacred site in the broad sense, Mm -hmm. that there would be less vandalism, that people wouldn't be disrespectful because in the past it was terrible. Sure. They were always tagging the site, you know what I mean? And uh, nobody really realized the bigger picture. So now, in all fairness, how how much can you get to convey in Mm -hmm. 200 words? You know what I'm saying? Sure. Mm -hmm. So you're really trying to like put a lot in there and you're hoping that people read that. Um, You know, the site itself, obviously, um, is a vast improvement along that whole trail system. And like I said, as the trail is developed, you know, at Colson and places like that, it's my hope that whoever is engaged in that work, if they reach out to us, mm-hmm. we will help guide that process. You know what I mean? We'll, yes. you know, um, you know we've, we have good contacts and stuff like that. Uh, one of the more challenging things, and th- this is really, uh, you know, it's, it's, a difficult topic too, you know, like a more challenging uh, the process or something with a project. Let's let's go to Yellowstone Kelly because that has some, you know, that's a that's a tough one because of course Yellowstone Kelly is also associated with being an Indian scout during the war, you know, the Indian Wars and particularly the Nez Perce campaign, and also uh, having had um, an encounter and then um, the killing of two Lakota Indians, you know, so he has that package, Mm -hmm. which isn't necessarily, it's not a good package to have. You know what I mean? I mean, he himself, even when, when he killed these two uh, Lakotas, uh, when he was delivering mail said, you know, this, this, this event had very, very little fruitfulness to me. You know what I mean? He he did not enjoy the experience, which very puts him very different from somebody like Buffalo Bill Cody, who amplified those kind of things. Yeah. You know, but or Teddy uh, Roosevelt or you know, or Teddy Roosevelt, <laughs> somebody like that. Yeah, somebody who wanted to like you yeah, know, glory. Um, but but I guess this is the it's important, and I don't know how to quite um, address it. But for example, uh, with the Kelly site, we you know. Uh, Bill Cole, uh, now Mayor Cole, you know, he, he addressed the Crow tribe. He addressed the council and said, you know, what what would your participation be? You know what I mean? What, what would you like? We want you to know about this, right? Um, I approached uh, individuals who are Crow historians, and, and they were um, resistant, and I completely understand why, because the tendency um, is to have, if you interview one Crow historian, to have that person be the representative voice of all Crow. And that's always a sticky point. Yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, the Crow do have designated uh, preservation officers, obviously, that we hope to engage with. Um, but you're asking a lot. I mean, coming to, from the reservation to here, um, like I said, you know, Lawrence Flatlip, who I worked with for several years, actually I always had one good piece of advice for me, is that he always reference who you heard it from. Because, because from my perspective as an outsider, there's almost lineages of stories within, you know, mm-hmm. whether I worked with the Paiute or the Blackfeet or the Cheyenne, it depends on which lineage of stories mm-hmm. you learn from. 
There's not like, you know, the Bible is like a Bible, and it's still open for interpretation. But I found that when I worked with, for example, the Northern Cheyenne, I could work with, you know, Mr. Talbot or Mr. Elkshoulder, and they would have a lineage of stories. Mm -hmm. The difficulty is that's one lineage. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, whether it's on the Crow Reservation, too, whether it's Joe Medicine Crow, who we lean on quite a bit because we have his oral histories in our collections, or um, some of the other people we've uh, worked with from the Crow. You know, we have about 80 interviews from the Crow um, that are part of our permanent collections. Uh, it's difficult to get somebody, especially with a controversial topic or a person potentially, like mm -hmm. a Yellowstone Kelly, mm -hmm. to come out and say, Yes, I'll be the spokesperson. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think the one thing that we you can address is to do it early. So if there is a project like the Colson Park project, you would hope whoever is instigating it yeah. is working with the tribe very early on because I think the tendency uh, historically is to go to the tribe or go to a tribal historian as the project's already halfway done. And mm -hmm. say, how can we squeeze you in? Kind of, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which and might so, be the case with the Colson Park project because I'm not heard of any interaction. No, no, and you know, that. there's there's an opportunity there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Whether it's uh, talking about the Elk River or, mm -hmm. you know, right across the way is the Four Dances, one of the most important sites for the Crow. You yeah. know what I mean? Those stories have been written too, so you can rely in some ways on written texts and cite those texts and references. Like I said, you know, when I talk about uh, Sacrifice Cliff, I tend to lean on uh, Joe Madison Crow because we have the narrative text, or, or uh, Mardell Plainfeather because her lineage of stories come from Samuel Plainfeather or or Lawrence Flatlip, who has shared stories, and we've written them down. So, again, you have to reference just like you would any historic text and then go from there. But you're right. I mean, you have to have, you have to make the decision early on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, you know, when, when it comes to telling the story of Sacrifice Cliff, for one, you have to find out if it's a story that wants to be told or Place of the Skulls. Is it a story that wants to be shared? I mean, purposely, when I talked in that text panel at the Yellowstone Kelly site, I left it vague because the reason my rationale was in 1877 and 1882, the people of Colson who lived along the river talked about going up to the Shale Butte, Ribs, Buttes, and, and stealing and pot hunting. You know what I mean? And stealing mm. the beads. Yeah. It was nothing to them in the 1870s to go up and recreationally take beads from under a, you know, a wrapped body in a tree. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm still very careful about that. I, I found a, a, a projectile point um, north of Shepherd, and it's fantastic, beautiful projectile point. I uh, posted it on my Facebook page, and I said, you know, 2,000 years ago, someone was hunting for their family. Yeah. You know? And I said, I left the point where I found it, mm -hmm. which is ironic because I haven't been able to refine it now. <laughs> uh, I've gone up there like three times to look at it. I'm like, damn, you know, oh, the, yeah. the landscape's so vast. Sure. You know yeah. what I mean? But but it was interesting how many people posted on my site even and said, oh, my God, did you keep it? Yeah. You know, or, or did you donate it to a museum? Or, you know what I mean? There yeah. is that, that tendency for us to... To collect and squirrel it away somehow, but yeah, uh, I guess yeah. that'd be the the question. The narrative, um, just growing up, um, just everything being compartmentalized in a very neat, nice, tidy story that you could go back and Grandpa can sit down and wax poetic about it. Um, when in actuality, the history of it is so 
not arduous, but it's yeah. very shape shifting. Like you said, it's not, it's not easily told in a, in a very concise story, which I think a lot of people are convinced that's what tours want to see. Yeah. Um, I don't know if going forward, I guess the question would be what going forward would you like to see in like little historical markers around here um, that would convey the vastness and the diversity of the story that is around here and get them interested in that yeah, and that's a want, great, want them to go down that, that path. That's a great question because you're right. I mean, people like, you know, obviously all of us were, we're here doing a podcast. That's obviously a great way to do it, mm-hmm. to have a deeper discussion about these, these projects or these people or things like that. But, uh, and like on Facebook, I really love it when, I mean, I don't like all the, political crap for the most part i you know what i mean but yeah. a lot of the stuff that people post i'll read it you know what i mean it's mm-hmm. like it's really cool I, they're probably usually friends of mine and they probably have something interesting that they've read and they want to share it that's a great way to expand you know what's interesting like in a museum is that often what we do is very clipped you know what I mean? I mean, we talk about text panels and we talk about, like, for example, I'm developing this Hazel Hunkins uh, traveling show right now. And it's like, literally, we're like, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm of the mindset as a, you know, a verbose pe- person who's a, kind of an academic background mm-hmm. to like tell the whole story. But you can't, you have to convey it in 200 words. Yeah. Which is like insane. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And your only hope when you do that in a museum or in a traveling exhibit is that you spark somebody's interest. There it is. That's all you can do. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So, so if, if there's a mechanism in the exhibit to say, you know, to learn forward, you know, I mean, we're doing it right now. We have a really complex project. We have the Vietnam voices we're working on mm-hmm. and we've taken all that incredible oral histories the Gazette did mm-hmm. 80 interviews back in about four years ago. I always felt like maybe there's a, a place for us to to re-engage that project to kind of get it right up on the forefront again, you know. So so what we're doing, and, and bless her heart, but uh, Lauren Hunley, our community historian, weighed herself, you know, down with all of these interviews and and tried to get a sense of you know the feeling she was getting from these interviews, and then you know of course, like I said, the uh, the introduction tip clips are very you know. 250 words you know what i mean like mm-hmm. you know try to synthesize the vietnam war in 300 words that's, <laughs> yeah. what, that's what she's doing you know yeah. but what i like is that she has created this giant supersized panel with the picture of each person who was interviewed and how to access their interview that's cool that's all you can hope for you know what i mean you can hope that people get excited about like god i want to learn more about vietnam i want to read sit down and read uh, you know michael caputo's book or i want to listen to this particular interview from this person that that's that's all you're trying to do. You're trying to create a leap. You know, you're hoping that even if somebody doesn't do that, that, that they've been, you know, influenced or, or shaped or changed potentially, you know what I mean, by a particular mm-hmm. topic, you know. So um, like another example would be um, we have one called, uh, it's on, on the Not In Our Town movement, mm-hmm. which was here in Billings, uh, 2003, 2004. No, 93, 94, 93, I'm sorry. Yeah. In 1993. So we had students about 20 years after it happened, interview the people who had participated in it. So, for example, high school students who had never heard of it from West High interviewed like Chuck Tooley, who wasn't mayor at the time, but was engaged, Margie McDonald, people like that. So the students learned firsthand what the experience was like, what they were fighting against and stuff like that. And we created a traveling exhibit called Billings Fights Against Discrimination, you know, about that particular event itself. 
And we've heard great things from people who come to the museum. I don't know how much further it goes. Mm -hmm. Do they go home and go, damn it, that town did it? You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. You're just kind of conveying the story and laying out there, um, I suppose, without... I mean, obviously, we all have our own biases and our own opinions and surfacings, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, but you're trying to just convey kind of a story... Like I said, the students interviewed these particular people. This is what they said. And then present the uh, newspaper articles or some of the Ku Klux Klan flyers that people put on windows. M Margie McDonald's archives were amazing. So we were able to scan the whole collection. You know, again, that, that, that piece travels. It was at the public library, which I thought was pretty brave of them. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's yeah, gone absolutely. to schools. I mean, um, but, uh, you know, how, how much is done beyond that? We're, we're not necessarily organizing a, a group of people you know what i mean that, that that could be a way to go for a museum i you know what i mean mm -hmm. to actively engage in the community in particular things i think what we do is tends to be a little more passive probably yeah you know well and you know maybe you're not organizing the group of people but maybe someone who experiences it in your setting will then go and organize the group of people or you know and that's possibly how yeah. do you quantify that it yeah. can't but i'm sure yeah you know, the fingers reach a little further than you can see in all these cases. Yeah, his, history was very interesting because, you know, like I'm looking at Tim Lehman's stuff, Dr. Lehman from Rocky Mountain College recently on Facebook. He's doing a lot of research up in Helen. He's finding all these fantastic quotes from the 1880s yep. that, like, like are contemporary. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, They're about right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I do remember uh, there is an inter a quote in the... Um, the, the Billings fights against discrimination. It was it was two panels that were created called fear or caution, and and the basic premise of this these two giant panels, which like I said were just recently on display at the museum, were um, people react to things that they consider potentially menacing, you know, sometimes under the guise of caution. Mm -hmm. Later on, when you look at it, you realize it was out of fear. So, again, I'm crossing two exhibits now. But Hazel Hunkins and this discrimination both use the same quote. Um, in 1908, uh, the Billings High School uh, person who was second in class, his name was Ray Van Hooten, did a whole speech, a two-page speech. You can read it in the coyote about how immigration is destroying this country mm -hmm. and how Poles, Italians, Greeks, Jews... And the Chinese are destroying America. And there was a need to go back to the day, and he used this phrase, to our Puritan forefathers. So that's, that's the power to me of history a lot of times. Because when you look at a 1908 quote and you're hearing it and one, you know, you're, uh -huh. you're seeing this, but then you're hearing some of the same type of rhetoric, you know, um, you know, I'm, I, I've actually had friends who are, were Italian who, who seem to be, um, a little unsympathetic, you know, to immigration. And I said, oh, that's interesting, because here's this fantastic quote mm -hmm. you know, by a guy who said the same thing, and uh -huh. it's about Italians. Uh -huh. You know what yep, I mean? Absolutely. So that, that that's some of the shaping power of the narrative of history. You know what I mean? You don't have to, like, you just, you just lay it out there for somebody. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I've noticed, like, people who were coming into the museum were photographing those panels because there was discrimination against Mormons. There was a huge thing about, uh, you know, how the Mormons were going to destroy America. Um, there was another one where the Ku Klux Klan in 1920 went to 
the Broadview, our yeah, Broadview Church, and paid the minister and thanked him for all his efforts on behalf of the Aryan nation. Yeah, it was fascinating. <laughs> like, like you know, but but you lay those kind of things out there and you let people just settle. But like I said, there were people in the museum photographing the panels, wow. which I thought was interesting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, they were going to take it somewhere. <laughs> they were going to share that story. That went you know on I mean? Facebook, yeah. Instagram, or something. Yeah, I mean, there's and that's just reaching out. Yeah, than you can see. Yeah. Right, right. But, Weird story. Yeah, my grandma had a torch that her granddad, she was out of Harden, one of like 12, 11 kids. She had a torch in her basement that was used for the KKK really? that she brought down to the Western Heritage Museum. I and she said, it wasn't, about, it wasn't really about racism. We just, we just hated Catholics. <laughs> no, actually, it's funny because... I, 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 you know, it's so, like, that's great, Grandma. So funny, Good I was, Lord. I, I didn't hold the torch or uh-huh. fire it up yesterday, but I actually had it in my hand. It's like, yeah, it looks like yeah, a mace so It has almost. a little red canister yep. on it and a little wick. Yeah. Wow. Um, it's an amazing piece of history. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah, it is. And we actually, in the Billings Gazette, I think in like 1924, 28, there is a full page ad from the Ku Klux Klan that says just what you just said. Mm-hmm. We're, and we're, no, it says we're not, it says we're, we're not anti Catholic. We just like Protestants. <laughs> we're not anti Negro. We just like, European white people. That's <laughs> what it says. The whole sure. it's a full page piece. But the frightening thing of that is there are literally like eight tenets, the cardinal rules of the clan or something. The first four or five are like, okay. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> we we believe in public schools. Yeah. We believe in like states' rights. You know what I mean? Like, and then all of a sudden you start reading on and you get to yeah. the part where like Wow. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden it takes this incredible shift. You know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, God, who was it? Um, uh, who was the head of the Church Universal Triumphant? Mary Claire pa- Prophet? The prophet, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing her one time. And of course, I love science and I love biology and stuff. And she was talking about, you know, the, the facts of evolution are in the ground. You could see them. There are fossils on the hills. And, yeah. you know, I'm like, wow, you know. Yeah, and then, sure. like, all of a sudden she did this incredible right hand turn and went, but nobody talks about the alien invasion of 6,000 years ago. <laughs> Smoke bomb. <laughs> yeah, but the clan thing had that feel. Like, yeah. you read the first three or four, you're like, okay. Okay, you know, uh, and then yeah, all of a sudden it's like, yeah. whoo, big <laughs> yeah. shift, you know? So, well, thank you for that. That was an awesome donation, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, she just brought I, that I, up. I think she said it was used in um, in Laurel. Is that possible? It's, yeah, then, so know, they used Square to... Square Butte and Laurel. You, yeah, they used the to have rallies. Butte. Yeah, if you drive by on, on I-90, if you look off to the right, you see the big... That's right. Butte, and, but you can see a cross that was up there, and they would go and meet up there and have their meetings and, I don't know, burn a cross every yeah. so often or whatever they... Yeah, it was Horrible like thing between, that they were doing. right between Park City, closer to Park City. Yeah. It was a laurel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I always wanted to go up there and see if there <laughs> are artifacts or remnants of that. Uh, I'm know, sure so, there's something up there. You know, so, you know, it's interesting when we tell our story, you know, I, I have a very simple thing, a, a way of thinking of what we do at the Western Heritage Center. And, and I like I always have found parallels with the chamber mm-hmm. is that really all we do, all my job is what people ask what I do, I say I make people feel more at home. Period. Yeah. That's all. You know what I mean? Like if you're a visitor to Billings and you want to learn about Billings, you can go to the Western Heritage Center or you can do like a walking tour or you can hear one of our programs or something. Mm-hmm. And you know a little bit more about our town. So I always feel like it relieves anxiety at some level and not not bad anxiety, just anxiety, you know. Mm-hmm. And the same with people who live in our town, people who come on a walking tour and go, wow, 
I never knew that. That yeah. is really cool. So it's like this very basic premise that we we provide, you know, and the chamber does too. The chamber, like I always feel like we give the maps of the past that go that bring you to the present. You know what I mean? Warts and all. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're mm-hmm. going to talk about. I mean. It's weird in a museum when you get excited because somebody brought a Ku Klux Klan torch in. But frankly, sometimes <laughs> an artifact will lend yeah. itself to the stories that are challenging. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, you know, in the same, I always feel like the chamber gives out the maps of the present to try to entice people to stay for the future. Mm-hmm. So I always felt like the chamber and us are very parallel. We end yeah. up working a lot with the chamber because I think also that... Uh, I, and maybe it's more of a Billings, Central Montana, South Central Montana, or Eastern Montana, but history is hot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like you know, like all the projects we get involved with, Yellowstone Kelly, you know, somebody approaches us, we have the expertise to do the research, or uh, the Billings Depot, you know, whether it's uh, to do interpretive panels along mm-hmm. the fence line there, or uh, the Rotary, we did the history of Billings Rotary, which I have not seen on a bestseller list yet. Oh, that's weird. No, no. Uh, <laughs> my own daughter hasn't read the book yet, so, <laughs> which I'm like, I have like four copies at home. If you want a copy, please right. let I'd me be know. interested, probably. Well, uh, yeah, we'll send a, we'll send a link, we'll put a link on that. Yeah, so. we can. We'll put oh, a link in the show notes for oh the Rotary. Oh my God, I got a whole case. <laughs> and I want to say as the primary author, it, I think it's I think it's good. You <laughs> yeah. know? I mean, it's a pretty narrow topic, but it's still <laughs> very, good. You very know? niche. That's very very niche. niche. That's, yeah, that's right. Okay. So, what are some of yeah. uh, the lesser-known people? I, we got you know almost an hour already, but um, what are some of the people that you would like to see more focus on that you wish people knew more about, like the Hazel Higgins? Okay. And uh, just do. I'm not. Yeah. Asking you to go off on, on an hour tangent. Just, sure. Just a couple. Just like. Good okay. examples of I'll, people. I'll do, I'll do the broad and a uh, uh, narrow one. Uh, broadly, here we are on the south side of Billings. Is that secret information? No. No, no? okay. So we're on the <laughs> south side of Billings. And, um, you know, in our collections, for example, I always give this example. We have 1,000 photographs of downtown Billings, 950 north of the tracks, 50 south. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the question was why? Mm-hmm. Well, because Billings, when 1882 came around, Billings was created. The railroad put the railroad through the middle of town and created two towns. They created a north side and they created a south side. The north side got the depot, which lended itself to the development of the north side, the city hall, the courthouse, the churches. Mm-hmm. The south side, which if you think about the south side, and I'm not, I don't want to be disparaging of the mm-hmm. south side, but um, if you think about the town now split in half by the railroad, then split it again. So you have four quadrants, right? Mm-hmm. Where do you put the smellier stuff in town? You put it downwind in that one, mm-hmm. what's what would be here, the southeast quadrant. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. So like I said, north side gets all the civic, all the churches, the big stuff. The south side gets the sugar beet factory, followed by the oil and gas, followed by the stockyards, and in some ways even the sewage treatment plant on and on. So Mm -hmm. the South Side developed so differently and so uniquely that we had this fantastic project. Uh, We have actually a traveling exhibit called the South Siders now, where we identified the need to find out more about the people who live here on the South Side, their stories. The Sugar Beet Factory, for example, when it opened in 1906, they recruited almost 500 Germans from Russia out of Nebraska to come here. 
Yeah, and so the Germans from Russia, if you're not familiar with it, I, know, I don't want to take up another hour, but the Germans from Russia were basically, they kind of remind me of Hutterites in some ways, but the Russian government invited, invited German agriculturalists to live in the Black Sea and Volga regions of Russia okay. in, by the early 1800s. Three generations later, the, German, the Russian government says, you know, now we want you to join the army. And they had a systematic uh, process of discrimination and even the burning of their villages. <laughs> they start dispersing by the 1880s. Most of them, a lot of them come to the United States. Mm -hmm. Nebraska, North Dakota, Colorado, South Dakota, obviously, and Montana. And because they're agriculturalists and the sugar beet industry has taken off, it's a perfect fit. Yeah. So at one point, we had three German-speaking churches on the south side. No kidding. Yeah, the, the Lutheran, the, I can't remember the names offhand, but the three German-speaking churches, huge German from Russian population kind of in the South Park area. Now, they stay because they're not going back to anywhere. You know what I mean? They're like yeah. a lot of immigrants. They move on, like the Dutch who came here. They they withered under the heat in the 20s, and they mm -hmm. took off for like Whidbey Island in Washington. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but what happened in the 1920s is the sugar bean industry continued to grow. There was a need for immigrant populations. And so there was a, a steady hand of Mexican and Hispanic populations that moved uh, to the crop rotations like every four months or so. And what happened, they would come into the Billings area, but the sugar factory really needed people year-round whether to work in the factory or maybe thinning uh, in the spring. So the Billings Sugar Factory built a huge housing complex on the west side of the sugar factory, a Spanish-style colonia hmm. for the Mexican and Hispanic populations in the 20s. There's your other 500. So the south side has this incredible German from Russian population and this incredible Hispanic uh, Mexican population that is derived from this weird... Because they put a railroad through the middle mm -hmm. of town and, sure. uh, you know, the sugar factories on the south side. Uh -huh. So we went out and we started recording these interviews, uh, getting photographs from people, not only from Hispanic and from a German from Russia, but there was an African-American neighborhood on the south side, a Chinese colony, a Japanese colony, and other, the, the seedier side of town, the area of prostitution uh, on Minnesota Avenue. So it was really fun because we collected so much and brought into our collections and then built the Southsiders exhibit. So that's a great example. Mm -hmm. and, and it's out there and people are learning about it. We just had the exhibit out at Orchard School for their anniversary. And the kids were pumped yeah. because they recognized things like the sugar factory and the photos and stuff like that. The more specific example would be, um, you know, we, we do programs on uh, amazing women. You know, so we do a program like that has... Uh, Gwendolyn Hayes, the poet from Billings, who wrote about the homesteader women's experience. Mm -hmm. Incredible poetry. Like, like you want to weep when you read her poems from the 20s about what the homestead women experience. Uh, Pretty Shield, the Crow Medicine Woman. Uh, Ethel Hayes, the syndicated cartoonist from Billings, who was one of the highest paid cartoonists in the country. And sometimes I've seen that she was uh, credited... Um, in some ways, with the the flapper style, she had a uh, right. she had a cartoon called Flapper Fanny that was syndicated uh -huh. across the country. <laughs> She's a Billings High School grad. Yeah, I love the stories that are local mm -hmm. that people don't know. I mean, there's all those the Carolyn Lockhart, you know, from the Lockhart Ranch. You know, uh, if you're familiar with the Bighorn Canyon and stuff, mm -hmm. another incredible story. You know, and, and like any of these good stories, like Lockhart, if you're not familiar with her. Um, John, oh, I'm, I'm 
Clayton out of Red Lodge wrote a fantastic book. I mean, this woman, the more I learned about Carolyn Lockhart, the less I liked her. <laughs> but Elizabeth at work, yeah. the more she read, the more she liked her. <laughs> so, you know, it tells you about our personalities, yeah, you know. Sure. I'm like, oh, my God, she wanted to kill the rancher neighbor? You know, like, <laughs> she's like, oh, she's awesome, you know. Like, so um, so there's so many of these kind of stories that are out sure. there. And that, that I, it was one of the coolest parts of our job is that I almost feel like sometimes, and we talk about this at work all the time, it's like almost like a resurrection. Like we had this opportunity. Somebody says, oh, my God, have you heard about Carolyn Lockhart or Hazel Hunkins who – very few people had heard of eight, nine years ago. And now we're able to, now there's a statewide curriculum on her. The high school, oh, cool. our kids are learning about her. There's going to be this traveling exhibit. C-SPAN has talked about her. The Gallery for Outstanding Montanans Corps group learned about her. It's cool. These are the stories, you know, yeah. like instead of Ollie Warren, the prostitute, I'm sorry, she's great, but... sure. How about Hazel Hunkins, the suffragist, Ethel Haynes, the syndicated cartoonist, Pretty Shield, the medicine woman, all of these more positive characters. Again, like Carolyn Lockhart, I love. But they're they're not free of warts. No. You know well, what I mean? Yeah. And fortunately, a lot of them left diaries, so we know how, <laughs> how wow, worthy yeah. they were. <laughs> yes, yes, they definitely were. That's so. cool, yeah. The, that, and, you know, just these things can spark somebody. Listen. Yeah. All right, she sounds interesting. I'd like to look her up. Yeah, and and you know there's going to be more people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, it comes from every different angle. We hear about, every year we hear about somebody or a family donates a collection or, or we get a, a Ku Klux Klan mm -hmm. torch. You know what I mean? It builds upon this whole kind of just giant trove of, you know, material that we try to wade through and try to share, you know what I mean, with the yeah. public and stuff. So, So it is really fun. You know, I got, it's exhausting for all of us well, too. Yeah. But uh, I got the honor and distinction of um, hand donating some uh, Ethel Hayes stuff to you from the Moss oh, family. Oh, I'm so, like sorry, I forgot all okay. about. No, it's okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, that's right. Stuff. Yeah, she was apparently friendly with the Mosses, and oh, that's right. So, like to make paintings of them. And yeah, and that that pastel. <laughs> I think it was. I can't remember. It was a pastel she did of. Uh, Curly the Crow Scout uh -huh. is phenomenal. It's beautiful. Isn't it, it is beautiful work, and that kept it. You know, and and you know, she <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should have kept it because it is nice yeah. actually. But you know, it's an interesting for us because now we have another representative piece of mm -hmm. her story. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, she's you know, like I said, a cartoonist during the 1920s, Flapper Fanny, and uh, really famous cartoons. But almost all of us have seen her work mm -hmm. because in the 30s and 40s and 50s, she was doing all the children's books. Yeah. Like Townhouse, Town Mouse, mm -hmm. Humpty Dumpty. She did the illustrations on a lot of those really classic family books, too. Mm -hmm. So they're out there. And again, I just think it's extraordinary that, you know, a person from Billings High School who we're just revisiting with now 100 years later. Yeah. You know what I mean? She grad uh, Ethel Hayes graduated, I think, 1911 from Billings High, uh, Hazel Hunkins, class of 1908. Wow. It's very strange how I live in the past, isn't it? Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. <laughs> and go Billings High Schools. Go Billings High School, <laughs> right? Out some high-quality folks. Yeah, yeah. Still. Yeah. Still, well, that, except yeah. maybe the one guy who did the speech about immigration that way. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Except, well, again, you know, hers, hers, she has a two-year, two-page speech, Hazel Hunkins, also in that 1908 publication. Oh, really? Oh, and it's like, you know, I'm so grateful for the teachers I've had. And, I, you know, we have two things in this world, she said, 
two things that we cling to, memory and hope. This is a 16-year-old girl writing, and we have her speech. Mm. And she's talking about memories, about how you know there are all these things that, that maybe got past us, those opportunities that we missed. Yeah. But we also have the hope as we, as we grow in this world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like freaking beautiful stuff. I mean, for a kid... To say like those things, <laughs> no. <laughs> Memory and hope sounds like something more like a presidential candidate would talk about today, right? Yeah, you know. So someone should plagiarize that speech. Yeah, <laughs> it might actually. You know? yeah. We can only hope, right? Yeah, a long tradition yeah. of plagiarizing speeches. Why, why not do a good one? Um, oh. One more yeah. little question that I wanted: um, What's your favorite like myth? to dispel about Billings? Oh, that's a great question. We get every month, and I'm sure you get the same question, is where are all the tunnels, Yeah, the underground tunnels? I actually was even interviewed by the FBI <laughs> because the word got out that that's the tunnels went under the railroad tracks. Uh-huh. And this was before September 11. This mm-hmm. was back in the late 90s when it first started. And I had heard <laughs> these stories about these tunnels. And... Uh, there was a gentleman who was an engineer from Chicago who worked with us, and he he explained how steam tunnels work. And he basically said, steam tunnels tend to get smaller the further you are from its source because you're trying to compact the steam, you know. And he said no one in their right mind, unless you wanted to be a shrunken head, would go through a steam tunnel while it was obviously active. Because there were stories of the Moss kids going from the steam tunnels underground to Lincoln School. Uh-huh. The steam plant was where Lincoln School is today. But, uh, you know, I, I've looked at, like, examples of, uh, you, you'll love this. I had a couple of guys come in recently. They were what I would call conspiracy theorists. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they want to know about the tunnels. So, anyway, I, right away I said, you know, I have this article I have to show you. It was a 1941 article about China Alley, you know, on the south side where the skateboard park is. And, uh, obviously, that, that's a lot of the tunnel rumors comes from that period also, like where there's supposedly Chinese running under the ground and going under the tracks and whatever, you know. Anyway, the the, city is yeah, yeah. The, the article in 1941 in Billings Gazette has a subheader that said, there are no tunnels. <laughs> So in 1941, they were asking, people were asking the same questions. Yeah. So anyway, I read the guy, I, honestly, I, I pulled it out for these guys. There were two of them. And I pulled it out and I said, look at this. 1941, there are no tunnels. And they went, holy crap, that is the best evidence we have ever found for tunnels. For the tunnels. <laughs> <laughs> because obviously the press lies. Yeah, well, clearly. And if they say there's no tunnels, that means there are. That's how they rationalize. So, so again, we do get those questions about the tunnels all the time. Oh, yeah. There are steam tunnels around Lincoln. You've been in them probably. You know, have you ever been in them? They're I actually not, quite cool. I want so badly to go in them. Yeah, they're cool. Actually, they, uh, they use them for like a haunted ghost tunnel. Back in like the 70s or 80s, so it's really creepy. There's like people had painted skulls that said, you know, hell this way kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So it really adds to the ambiance. But in terms of like tunnels around downtown, like like for example, the Stapleton building, which was our first big skyscraper where Big Dipper is, Mm -hmm. they were already, already had their own boiler system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they said that. Yeah. So they didn't need the steam mm-hmm. coming down. So, you know, why why would you build a tunnel yeah. where there was no need for a tunnel? So, like I said, I don't want to be too dismissive of the tunnels because I could be wrong, but I have not found one single person mm-hmm. or one article. You know, you would think there would be a newspaper article that would say 16 guys were busted in the tunnels, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere, but I have not found it yet. 
Again, I can't hmm. completely dismiss it, but I would think that the city works folks who do the roads and the sewers would know about them. Maybe they don't found see, one by now. That's right. They don't yeah. seem to... They would know, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. there are vaulted sidewalks all yeah. over downtown. Yeah. You know, and you can go out of, like, for instance, the yesteryear's building. There's a yeah. door in the basement. That's right. That I've seen that sticks yeah. you right underneath into the yeah. vaulted, which is under the sidewalk and slightly under the street, I think, in yeah. some places, which is not great. Mm-hmm. And all they are basically a larger basement than yeah. than the square footage upstairs. That's yeah. basically all it is. But I mean, there's probably more tunnels in the houses that were built in the 50s where they built bomb shelters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know? you, I've seen those. Have yeah. you seen that? In yeah, buildings? We, are, especially, we, I can't remember, in the West End, kind of in the uh, 12 or 1400 block, uh, yeah. 50s development. Yeah, mm-hmm. they had uh, bomb shelters. I've seen them in people's garages and stuff. Yeah, They're underneath cool. the... The driveway was one yeah, we found. Yeah. So it went from the house under the driveway. And of course, we should let everybody know that's where we are right now. We're yes. in the bomb shelter in your backyard here <laughs> on the south side. <laughs> yeah, finding us. Yeah, good, good location. Undisclosed. Yeah, I'm surprised we can even get the transmission out. Yeah, that's <laughs> amazing. Because these concrete walls are about four feet thick, aren't they? So, but it is cool down here. It's a little dark, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, a little musty. Nice. This is where the designated survivor stays during city council meetings. It in is. Case yeah. Yep. Yeah. An accident in city hall. Yeah. <laughs> So it's the stocky and stout yeah. uh, shelter. We right? are the designated survivors. Okay, yeah. okay. okay. Indeed. shouldn't say that. Good. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for taking an hour out of your day to yeah, come talk to yeah. us. I'm sure we'll talk to you in the future because I um, inhale history podcasts like it's nobody's business. Yeah, actually. I, 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 my attention span for lesser known his, historical stuff is is surprisingly long. Boundless. Considering, well, boundless, yeah. Boundless. Considering, yeah, my like... Uh, education upbringing because i couldn't stand still and i couldn't retain a lot of information yeah. and stuff but yeah once podcasts came around and people who really engaged me in the subject it was off to the races really yeah. for me and and that was the one question i had for you when i came in is like like not really knowing much about podcasts i mean most of what i listen to are like 15 minutes or 20 minutes mm-hmm. i mean i have done 40 minute ones but mm-hmm. um but you have listeners who are yeah. being very patient <laughs> out there beyond the shelter. Yeah, right? absolutely. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, Good. Tens of them. Tens, tens of them. I love that. Listeners. That's cool. Good. You know, we get we get a few uh, few ups and downs in the hits, and it's, yeah. but it's you know it's a billing centric thing, right? And nobody from Cleveland's really going to be terribly interested in what we have to say, right? Yeah. But um, Canada, we're we're surprisingly. Strong in Canada. Strong Canada. <laughs> so good. really, I love so that. So goes uh, United States, Canada, and then the Republic of Korea. Wow, yeah. <laughs> we 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 uh, do our we uh, tape our programs, Community Seven films them for mm-hmm. us, and then they put them on Vimeo. We actually found out I don't know how they found this out, but that there were people in Sweden watching our program of David North. You know who he is mm-hmm. the former chief designer of General Motors. Oh, he was okay. here in Billings. Yeah. He did like the GTO and uh-huh. the Buick Riviera and gotcha. stuff like that. You know, but people car clubs in Sweden really were tuning into our program, which <laughs> I thought was pretty damn cool. That yeah, was pretty cool. That is yeah. nice. Speaking so. of another famous and influential Billings resident, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We could talk. You could talk all about the 1950s. Oh. I mean, the Bud Luckies, the David Norris, the Frederick Clayton Jackson, all designers from oh, Billings, yeah. Billings Senior. So next time, yeah, sounds good. I'm in. Right. Yeah, so thanks a lot again for for talking to us. Um, yeah, there, there's. I have no idea how to close it because my mind is drawing a blank right now. Well, but if you've even, got something, not even beginning to scratch the surface, but hopefully some names were rattled off that a listener might want to 
Google or check out, and and by all means, you got to go down to the Western Heritage Center. Yeah, please yeah. do. Um, what are what are the uh, just oh, wander yeah. in hours? Oh. Uh, yeah, Tuesday through Saturday, ten to five. Mm-hmm. We're there all day Mondays. A lot of people will come in and do research and archives on Monday or something cool. like that. But like I said, a lot of what we do is outside. So sure. walking tours, mm-hmm. public programs outside the building, traveling mm-hmm. exhibits. So, you know, Facebook is always like us on Facebook. Yeah. Our website, ywhc.org, um, okay. which is now phone friendly. Nice. We're making steps. Nice. And, what's, and uh, what's the exhibit that's up right now? Uh, we're going to close the uh, Ben Steele shows. We have the Ben okay. Steele Prisoner of War paintings of his experience during World War II. And then upstairs, we did the Ben Steele show, Friends of Ben, mm-hmm. because I wanted to have some kind of balance between the darkness of humanity mm-hmm. and the lightness. Yeah. So when you're down and looking at the POW stuff, you're completely depressed. And when you go upstairs, you see how much influence he had as a professor, as a teacher, mm-hmm. as a mentor. Mm-hmm. And his students, people like Clyde Aspavigs or his friends like Carol Hagen and Charlie Fritz all did these, and they were very courageous doing this, uh, one-page bios on how they knew Ben. Oh, wow. It's beautiful, actually. It's really cool. I have, a book, I have a book to show you before you leave then. Okay. Remind me. And that's, okay. and that's closing down when? Uh, September 21st. We're getting all the okay. Ben Steele school students. I don't know how we're going to do this because T-backs, yeah. North by Northwest, all of this stuff's going on at the same time. But uh, we're going to get the students from Ben Steele Middle School to come in before September 21 to see the two shows. So. That's worth oh, seeing. Well. He's an amazing person. Yeah, he was cool somebody dude. who you talked to, and I could not. I was like almost high for three days. Yeah, you come like, away I couldn't complain about anything. <laughs> oh, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. He was just such a loving and deep person so yeah very cool guy well thanks a bunch and yeah uh, thank you we'll see you now, how do you open the door to the shelter out of here i mean this uh, you know the code. oh you, you do? do okay <laughs> yeah. all right thank it's you a, it's a handprint. okay cool that's cool <laughs> <laughs>